One thing we have tried to give some kind of an outline of the psalm, as we have typically done. And then also, another thing you can do is divide the psalm into four or so themes. Uh, And you may be, as we're going down, just kind of write where these verses fall in this category. Maybe some of them will fall in more than one place. Maybe some of them describe both the enemies and the distress, or the enemies and how he begs God's help. Uh, And um, you may decide another category is prominent enough to be mentioned uh, to be to be uh, up there with those instead of reading the whole psalm as we have often done let's just read the first 13 verses now and get that in front of us for the choir director a psalm of david in you o lord i have taken refuge let me never be ashamed in your righteousness deliver me Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your Hand, I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in you. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness, because you have seen my affliction, and you have known the troubles of my soul, and you have not given me over into the hand of my enemy." You have set my feet in a large place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sign, and my my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sign, because strength has failed because of my iniquity. My body is wasted away because of all my adversities. I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances, and those who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side, while they took counsel together against me. While they together, while they took counsel together against me, they schemed to take away my life. So many of these verses, he's going to emphasize that he puts his trust in God. He puts his trust in God in the midst of some difficult experiences. And that is the idea of these Psalms of Lament. They are dealing with continuing to trust in God even though the problems of life are many. And he states at the beginning, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. This idea of taking refuge in God will appear quite regularly uh, throughout the psalm. But I have taken refuge in you. Let me never be ashamed. Let me never be ashamed. Now, 
That statement in verse 1 about not being ashamed is going to be basically repeated in verse 17. For in verse 17, he's going to make a plea to God, begging to Him, let me not be put to shame. But then when he asks for judgment on the wicked, in verse 17, he says, let them be put to shame. The wicked are trying to shame him. He asks that they not succeed, that he not be put to shame. But he asks that those who are wicked be put to shame. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Now, I stated one of the things to look for in the Psalms is what does it tell us about who God is? And this is a verse that fits there right away. It fits in that third category for a couple of reasons. One, he says that he puts his refuge in God, puts his trust in God, but he pleads with God to save him on the basis of God's righteousness, on the basis of who God is. God is a righteous God. And God, because you are righteous, we trust in you to set the records straight. Incline your ear to me. Maybe some of your translations, the word can have this idea, have bow your ear to me. But it is a plea for God to listen. And be to me a rock of strength. Now, the word rock that's used in verse 2 is a different word than the word rock used in verse 3. But both of them carry the same idea. It is a place of security. It is a place of shelter. And he says, be to me a rock of strength. In the next line, he says that you are my rock. He's asking God in verse 2... To do what he, to act in accordance with what he already knows God is and who he already knows God is. Be to me a rock of strength and a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you will lead me. And guide me. Can we think of anything else in the book of Psalms that is said to be done for God's name's sake? Have we encountered anything like this before? Twenty-three. Twenty-three. You know, lead me in the paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. In twenty-three and verse three. In twenty-five. 25 verse 11 for your name's sake O Lord pardon my iniquity for your name's sake pardon my iniquity again he's asking God to act because of who God is because of who God is he asks him to act and this will enhance God's reputation Don't let me be put to shame. Deliver me. Rescue me. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Lead me and guide me. Those words lead and guide from verse 3 
are used together one among many places lead uh, was what? Guide. Guide. Yes. Those are used together in Exodus 15 verse 13 when God was guiding Israel through the wilderness or that was in prospect of this. This is a song celebrating deliverance from Egyptian bondage. You are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me, and you'll pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. So often the book of Psalms talks about the wicked or, or, or the righteous, the, the wicked trying to lay a net to catch the righteous. But God, you pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. Enemies are going to be very prominent in Psalm 31. And you see it right there. And he says, For you are my strength. And the word strength here, I think the word's only used 36 times in the Old Testament, but it's just been used twice in what we've read tonight. It was read in verse 2, You are a rock of strength. And it's used in verse 4. You are my strength. And he says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. So God was said in verse 1 to be a righteous God. In your righteousness deliver me. In verse 5, God is said to be a God of truth. You are a God of Uh, of truth. But he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. In verse 5, he talks about committing everything into God's hands. You will also see a similar idea in verse 15. Where in verse 15, he says, my times are in your hand. But I want you to notice a contrast. In verse 8, you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. In verse 15, my times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies. So there is a difference between the psalmist committing himself to God's hands and delivering himself to the hands of God and asking God to deliver him or to rescue him from the hands of the enemy. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Now, you may want to remember that verse when we go later tonight. Later tonight we talk about Jesus and Psalm Psalm 31. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed, O Lord, my God of you ransomed me, O God, God of truth. That is a profound statement, though. Into your hand I commit my spirit, or my times are in your hand. He is just surrendering himself to God, and he recognizes that his problems are bigger than he can handle. They are greater than he can deal with. And he is committing himself into the hands of God. Father, into your hand 
I commit my spirit. It is interesting to me, it was interesting to me in reading some things for this, that these have been the last words of several people throughout church history uh, in imitation of, of Jesus. A thought you have on verses 1 through 4, 1 through 5, we've seen the enemies mentioned in verse 4, um, the plots laid against him are also kind of inherently there when it says you pull me out of the net. So we see his distress, we see his enemies, we see him um, and he's begging God to hear his prayer uh, in all verses 1 and 2. But what other thoughts do you all have? In verse 5 when he calls him uh, the God of truth, is truth the, the best word there you think for that? It could be translated faithfulness. Yeah, so to me those are faithful. Okay. Yeah. It, 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 the ESV uses that? The NIV. NIV uses that. What's the ESV use? It says truth. Sorry, I'm not in of the other one. Sorry, let me see. Verse 3. Faithful God. Faithful God in the King, New King James had truth. Truth. But... One of the thing, one of the key attributes of God in this prayer is going to be God's loving kindness, which will be mentioned in chapter in verse seven, in verse sixteen, in verse twenty-one. But remember, loving the words that are used here for loving kindness in these verses, these last three I wrote, and the word truth or faithfulness. Those are the same words used in Exodus 36, excuse me, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, when God revealed himself to Israel, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, uh, abounding in loving kindness and and truth. Uh, These are the same words God uses to describe himself there. And, of course, that is a monumental event as God delivered His people from Egyptian bondage, as God reveals Himself to Israel. But but there are a lot of things in the vocabulary in this section that people have commented on um, that tie with the Exodus. We already saw one of them, the idea of God leading and guiding the psalmist for His namesake and how those words were used to describe God leading and guiding Israel to the wilderness. So, so it's tied to, to what God has done in the past. What God's done in the past. Okay? If no other thought, in, verses, in verse 6, he says, I hate those who regard vain idols. Now, this is largely a prayer. And he's talking about people he hates in a prayer. But but again, um, this is a. It's interesting that he says this, completely believing that God approves of what he's saying, and I think God does approve of what he's saying. He's not saying he doesn't want those people to be converted. He doesn't want those people to be won over. There is some truth in the idea of loving the sin. 
uh, of loving the sinner and hating the sin. There's truth in that idea, but there are times that God's personal hostility is described as being against not only the sin, but the person who commits the sin. The Lord hates the one who sows discord among brethren. For example, Proverbs 6 in verse 19. So, so God's hatred is talked about as being toward individual wrongs. And Jonah uses this kind of language in Jonah 2 verse 8. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. Now, one point that we've tried to make about the Hebrew language, which I think is a very simple point, you can't always see it, but usually the person that is acting, the person that's acting in Hebrew is inherent in the verb. It's just an ending on the word that shows you whether it's you, whether it's I, who is acting. When you have a separate personal pronoun, I, it's almost like saying I twice. I, I trust in you. When you have a separate personal pronoun, it is for emphasis. And that separate personal pronoun appears in verse 6 and it appears in verse 14. While many of the other people in the world turn to idols and look to other gods and they're looking to other things, I, Emphatic. I trust in you. I trust in you. He is different than those who put their hopes in other places. Now, this is a psalm of David. It is hard for us to believe this, but it may well have been the case. The faithful in ancient Israel may have been the minority among the people. I want you to think about that. Even in Israel, if you look at some of these Psalms, you definitely get that idea, don't you? That they may have been the minority, even though this was supposed to be God's people doing God's will. And he says, I hate those who regard vain idols. I trust in you. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness. Some of your versions have steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction and have known the troubles of my soul. Okay? Bear with me here. Let's tie this again. We told you the word truth used at the end of verse 5 to describe God and loving kindness used in verse 7 and verse 16 and verse 21 to describe God. uh, That these are the same terms by which God reveals Himself in Exodus 34. He is a God of loving kindness. He is a God of truth. The word that is used here and translated affliction is a word that is used to describe Israel's affliction in the land of Egypt in Exodus 3 verse 7. In Exodus 3 and verse 17. And just like God saw their affliction and showed Himself a God of loving kindness and truth by rescuing them from the net, He is asking God to do the same thing in His circumstances. You have known the troubles of my soul. You know, he's talking here about his distress. 
You know the troubles of my soul. You have seen my affliction. And you have not given me into the hand of the enemy. But you have set my feet in a large place or a broad place. And when he talks about his distress, that is front and center in verse 9 through 13. Be gracious to me, O God, for I am in distress. My eye has wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow, my years with sign. My strength has failed because of my iniquity. My body has wasted away. That word wasted away in verse 9, verse 10. I only found it used three times in the Old Testament and two of them are right here. In verse 9, verse 10, my eye is wasted away. In verse uh, 10, my body has wasted away. Begs God, be gracious to me in my distress. His life is filled with sorrow. His life is filled with sign. His load is heavy. Now, I ask you to look at verse 10 again. Let me read part of it, first part of it. But as, but for my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sign, my strength has failed because of my iniquity. Do any of your versions have anything different besides iniquity there? Affliction. Affliction. And that's the ESV or NIV. NIV, NIV is affliction. Okay. The the reason for some differences in translations like this and the trouble is to run out of board to place all this on. Um so I said my dream classroom is just a giant board. Um but the word is iniquity in several of the translations. Iniquity. I think that's spelled right. And verse 10. But like you said, the, the word affliction is in the NIV. And you can look and see what your translation has. Is it affliction or misery? Yes, iniquity. Okay. Okay, uh, but the NIV had affliction or misery? Affliction. Affliction, okay. You said? Okay. You said. New revised standard. Yes. Misery. misery, misery, the new revised standard. Okay, this is a question. The reason sometimes you see differences in translations is this is iniquity was in the Hebrew text, the manuscripts, most of the manuscripts from the Hebrew text have this, and this is regarded as um, the best reading the Hebrew text. Most translations make a choice that they will go with the best reading of the Hebrew text. The reason some have affliction and misery is because of other translations translations like the Septuagint had translated it that way. And so they 
they translated affliction or misery, some of the versions. I want you just to be thinking about that verse and what that verse shows to us in the big picture of things when we get to the end of class, okay? So just think about that. If an iniquity... It does seem like it's the best rule of, of is to go to the Hebrew translation if even if it's different from the from the way the Hebrew manuscripts instead of if it differs from the translations given. Tommy, yes. Is there a question maybe about what an older Hebrew meant and so they take the Septuagint as like yes. It's more conclusive than what we. Some places that is that is the case. I, I don't think that is so much the case right here. That is the situation sometimes. And like we, if you read Proverbs starting with ten through twenty-two, as we did some in a class last quarter, if you do that, you you find that there's some wildly different translations. And part of that is the problem is because you're dealing with that kind of thing. It's unsure what the Hebrew meant, so they might lean on a Greek translation or another ancient translation. And and then there's a debate among various uh, translations of which what they should go with. But like I'm probably wandering too much and not being precise enough in what I'm saying. Um... And uh, isn't that mostly like with an animal or a stone? Or it, it's usually with words that we're not very familiar with, okay? Or words that are not in, in which this is tied that are not used often. Mm-hmm. Like when we went over Leviticus eleven, you all may remember that that some of the animals mentioned in Leviticus eleven, the New American, are different than the animals mentioned in the ESV or NIV. Well, the reason is some of those words are used so so rarely, it's largely a guess of translators what they meant. And um, so, I, I didn't mean to get bogged down, and I probably did not explain it well. But I, to, to get the mood of the psalm again, I do think that word is going to be important for another reason, and that's why I deal with it. But to get the overall mood of the psalm, just think of the distress of the writer. Think of his heart. Think of how broken he is. In verse 11 through 13 again. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. And an object of dread to my acquaintances, to those who see me, who see me in the street, flee from me. Even his neighbors, who among whom he could expect normally a kind welcome, they don't want to be with him or be seen with him. Have you ever been in a circumstance where almost everyone you knew kind of keeps their distance from you and embarrassed about their association with you? That's what this psalmist experienced. Because of all my adversaries, I'm a reproach, especially to my neighbors. In verse 12, I am forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. Uh, 
sometime earlier this year, I went to a to a graveyard that was beside a church building that I worship. Uh, some with somebody in a family growing up, and there was one tomb I remembered because it had a picture of a very young man who was killed in Vietnam, and I can remember this even from a young man in, in the inscription, "Gone but not forgotten." He's forgotten now. I, mean, I hate to say it that way. But often, when someone is out of sight as a dead person, they are out of mind. And we go on, eventually have to go on. And, and he feels that way while he's still living in verse 12. I have forgot this a dead man, out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel. Okay, really, the word is perishing vessel, but a broken vessel, perishing vessel. I have heard the slander of many terrorists on every side. While they looked, they took counsel together against me. They schemed to take away my life. Now, think about this psalmist. By some, he is forgotten in verse 12. They don't have anything to do with him. He's just like a broken vessel that's of no use and of no value, like a dead man. To some, they dread to see him coming. Others are plotting to take away his life. If anybody cares about this psalmist, he knows it's not good. He knows it's not good from them, but the people who are his neighbors, they're just kind of keeping their distance and others are forgetting him. Now, this is a sad situation. And he needs a powerful God to deliver him. And he needs God to show his loving kindness and truth and to rescue him. Now, you may have this in footnotes. You may remember this from your study of the Old Testament. Terror is on every side. That is a phrase that we associate with whom? I'll say Job. Okay, that could be a good answer. Job was <laughs> forsaken by friends like this in Job 19. But specifically the phrase terror is on every side is associated with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a man who didn't have a good life. And by the way... Um, I can understand people naming their child Jeremiah as a good, good biblical name, good person, but he didn't have a didn't have an easy life. But Jeremiah, this phrase "terror on every side" is used in six twenty five, in twenty verse three, in twenty verse ten, in forty six verse five, and forty nine verse. I believe I've got written down twenty four. So at least five times in the Old Testament, that phrase terror is on every side is used in the book of Jeremiah. And it's also used once in Lamentations. And they're all plotting against him. They're all slandering him. They're all plotting his destruction. But in contrast to all these plots and all these plans for his demise, he says in verse 14, As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. And remember, we said that is emphatic. As for me, I, I put my trust 
in you. And I said, you are my God. Whatever happens, whatever other people say, what other, how many other people may forget Him and dread His presence, He is going to put His trust in God. Now, we're all going to have to say that at some point. All of us. Even if our problems are not as intense as His. And even if we are wrongly judging some who we think are against us or are plotting against us. We all have to say, I, I will trust in you. For you are my God and my times are in your hands. My time are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. In verse 16, make your face to shine upon your servant. Now remember the last psalm we covered, Psalm 30 verse 7. O Lord, by faith, by your favor you've made my mountain to stand. You hid your face, I was dismayed. You hid your face, I was dismayed. Now, in verse 16, make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. Again, that word. Make your face to shine upon me. These are imperatives in a sense. An imperative sentence is is a command, basically, close the door. But he is not commanding God, but he is earnestly pleading with God. Make your face. Make your face shine upon me. Save me in your loving kindness. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord. For I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. In verse 17, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent and shield. Let them die. That is, those are strong, strong words. But remember in verse 13, they schemed to take away my life. They were plotting his death. He begs God to do to them what they were doing to him. They're trying to put him to shame. He begs that he will not be put to shame, but that they will. And they speak against the righteous. I haven't given you much chance to talk or ask questions right here, uh, or previously, so right here would be a good spot. John? So, back in... Back in verse six, those who regard vain idols are are is that to be understood as uh, descriptive of the enemy? <clears throat> is he, has he jumped to some other topic, or is he now reflecting more about the enemy? It, it seems like that, that uh, many of his enemies, maybe not all, but but maybe but maybe many of them are putting their trust in, in false gods. 
to describe them as vain gods is just to say they are gods that will not help. They are of no use. But apparently, idolatry uh, seems to have been always pretty alive and well, even in the land of Israel. I, I think that that teaches us something, and, and, I, and I don't exactly know the best way to word it, but if that was the besetting sin of Israel through most of the Old Testament, and it was up until Babylonian captivity, Babylonian captivity was in some ways God's radical surgery to remove the sin of idolatry from the people. And you don't see Jesus preaching this idolatry because apparently it's not as big of a problem. But if that was such a besetting sin in Israel through much of their history, in what ways are we committing it that we're not even conscious of? Now we don't commit it in the same way they did where we bow down to another God. One of the ways, of course, Ephesians 5.5 5 and Colossians 3.5 says covetousness is idolatry. And that's one thing. Uh, and the God of money is a God that many are pursuing. But I, I, I got off of your original subject, John. So. If verse 10 is correctly translated his iniquity, is it intended to convey possibly that this is reflecting about his sin with Bathsheba? Or is it just, is there some other idea? It, it, it's difficult to be precise because there's so few clues in the psalm, if really hardly any clues in the psalm, that give us a precise point. I, I, I don't think, uh, that wasn't you know, David's all, only failing in short time. Um, so I, I don't think we could pin it down that precisely. Now, there's a connection between David's sin and David's affliction, too. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, often. And, and he's expressing that in this verse, uh, in that my strength has failed because of my iniquity. He, part of his problem is because it's his own fault and his own, uh, his own wrongdoing. Well, okay. iniquity causes us all to lose our strength. Yes. And because of sin, we die. Yes. But yet we're all guilty of sin, so we're yeah. no better than Adam yes. and Igor. Yes, that's right. And Psalm 90 will closely connect those themes of our sin and and death. Um, and, and the rest of the, there are other passages in the Bible that do it too, but that, that's one of them in the book of Psalms that will do that. Um, any, any, what, anything else, Ray? Well, just along with that, verse 4 says... For you are my strength. Yes. And so then when he talks about all the things that he did to stray away from God at times, that he lost his strength. Yes. So there's a direct connection between when I'm being the kind of person I'm supposed to be and trusting in God the way that I should, I am strong. Yes. But when I, when I leave when that, I stray away from him, then I'm weak. Good point. Yes, that's good. Um, let's look at verse 19 how great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you which you have wrought for those who take refuge 
in you before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret places of your presence from the conspiracies of men. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for He made marvelous His loving kindness to me in a besieged city. As for me, I set in my alarm. I am cut off before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications. When I cried to you. He he talks, he intermingles his distress with God's goodness and God's salvation. There's more here about God's goodness and salvation than there is about his distress. But sometimes they're interconnected. Because some of the things that God protects him from is the wrongs that others do. This is what's interesting about these verses that we just read. These verses describe God as, in verse 20, hiding us in the secret places from man's conspiracy. And in verse 20, the end of verse 20, keeping us secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. There God is hiding us, keeping us in secret. God is just like taking us and and tucking us away somewhere safely that no one can do us harm. But look at verse 19. It says, how great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. There, God's rescue is not a secret thing, a protective thing, hiding us from uh, wicked men finding us. In verse 19, God is displaying His blessings to us before all people. And both are true. Sometimes God hides us away. I like the statement that that when Jeremiah preached and prophesied and they wanted to take his life, the king searches for him, but the Lord hid Jeremiah. God sometimes hides us away from the conspiracies of men. And then God vindicates us publicly before all people. And ultimately, all of that points to final judgment. Though sometimes there are experiences of that In this life. But when he speaks of God's goodness to him. In verse 21. He says. You have made marvelous his loving kindness to me. In a besieged city. Now. Do you understand the idea of a siege? we're, We're not people that are necessarily conversant in the language of warfare. I'm not trying to be insulting. But. I don't know that I would have thought about this much and it got me for some biblical text. And what you did in a siege is an enemy army camps outside a city wall. And all self-respecting cities have walls to protect them from enemies. And they came, they camped outside the city walls. They cut off any supplies getting in that city. No food, no water gets in. And no one gets out unless they come to surrender. And sometimes what was done after they had kind of starved the people out to to hasten it, at times they may break down the walls with battery rams and come and kill the weak people who remain. Now, understanding that as being the idea of siege, what does it mean? That he made his loving kindness, he made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. 
David? Well, evil's all around us. Okay. And it's easy to feel like we're besieged, we're surrounded, mm-hmm. and we can't go anywhere. And so, God being with us and feeling that presence can really help us yes. when we feel yes. that way. Okay, you particularly highlight how we are besieged in the midst of our wicked world, which, which I would agree with. Something I think of too with that, David, and everyone, the picture we just draw on is just complete helplessness. Now, you're not, you know, you're not going to be delivered when that army's camping around you. And and so for God to do that, and, and that in a real sense describes all our circumstances, as David says. The fact that any of us get out of this life approved of God is due to His mercy and His grace. And it's just an amazing statement of His salvation and His power. And But when you think of I know that Christy tells the story and I wasn't there to witness it but one day that there was a really difficult spot that we had to pass on our way home and that um, the cars come out in three or four directions and she said I was in this situation and she said I just closed my eyes she was driving because I I knew we were going to get hit and she said somehow we got out of that and she said without getting hit, without causing a wreck. We didn't get hit. We didn't cause anybody else to wreck. And she said, there wasn't any explanation for how we survived that. There's no explanation. Now, I'm not trying to argue that that was a miracle. I'm not trying to um, um, to, to lay hands on the sick or anything. But the point is, we can all look at situations for which there is no logical way we escaped that bullet, so to speak. Except God delivered us. And God rescued us. And that's the way he feels as he looks back on his crisis. He had said in his alarm in verse 22, I'm cut off from before his eyes. But he realizes that God had heard. God had heard his prayer. God had heard when he cried to him. Did he change tense in 21 and 22? He, um, Did he go to past tense where he's not been before? Okay, let me look precisely at, at, at this. Because if he did, maybe is he reflecting on a previous time is my question. Okay. Um, I've not even seen a verb in 22. Let's see... Praise the Lord. Okay. The Lord being praised. That is a verb. Excuse me. First word. Praise be to the Lord. And that is uh, is in a perfect tense while the ones before it are imperfect. I'm making a quick glance at this, John, in response to your question. Well, I have to but yes. a note. I have a note that yes. somebody thought Yes, he did change tense. It, it seems like it seems like that that is the case. It seems like that is the case, but but 
isn't that the way, first of all, that's the way the Psalms go. That's the way we do in prayer. We're often telling a story of an immediate crisis and then we flip back to a time before where God rescued us or God helped us. And, and I think that the book of Psalms does that as well. And so, so yes, I, th- I think, I'm, and I'm just looking at this briefly, but, but it does seem to be that that is the case. Um, in verse... Um, in verse 23, he uses this as an encouragement to love the Lord. Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Be strong and take courage in verse 24. You ever heard those words together in the Bible? Particularly what book do you think of those songs? Be strong and take courage. Joshua, yes. And be strong and take and let your heart take courage. And these are the same words that are used four times in Joshua 1 to indicate that. I like that word in verse 23, the Lord preserves the faithful. The Lord preserves the faithful. That word preserves is often used in the Bible. Sometimes it's used of God's activity. There are other places it is. But it's often used of our activity. For example, when Proverbs 4.23 says to watch our heart or guard our heart, this is the word. Sometimes this word refers to our responsibility to guard ourselves, to keep ourselves. But here it is describing God keeping us. Yes, we are not passive in the process. We preserve ourselves. We keep ourselves. We walk in His way. But it's not like we're doing it alone either. The Lord is preserving us. The Lord is keeping us. The Lord is watching over us. And if we ever stand, it is by His strength. Not our own. Now, didn't feel like I did as well explaining that. Any questions right there on... That is a whole, Anne-Marie. I just have a comment. Um, okay. Back in 19, that reminded me of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Um, you know, how exceedingly abundantly more yes. than we ask or imagine. Yes. But also, for those of you who have read The Hiding Place, I kept going back to Corey Ten Boom. Yes. And all that she had went through and how she found thankfulness, especially her sister, <clears throat> in those places and how good things came out of it. Oh, exactly. They, they, they hid in verse 20 falls with that as well. You hide them in the secret places uh, of your presence from the conspiracies of men. Um, yes. And uh, that, that is a, that's a powerful story. And um, but that's uh, great. It's a great idea. Now you can fill in much more of those various points that I mentioned. When you think of Jesus and His fulfillment of the psalm, um, Brad, you were saying the other night you really like this part, so I'll give you first shot at a very because it's going to be very easy at first. Um, what, how, what the psalm reminds you of Jesus? Uh, what is it, Luke? Uh... 23, um, okay. the hands I commit my spirit of Jesus. Um, okay, Psalm 31 5 is quoted in Luke 23 46. 
who basically in the New Testament also echoes those words. I know it's it's a little different. Stephen does in Acts 7.59. He addresses that Lord Jesus received my spirit, which shows us the high position in which they understood Jesus. But he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, Lord, I commit my spirit. How does Stephen say it? Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit and lay not this sin to their charge. Uh, in Acts 7.59. In church history, Jerome, familiar with Jerome, who lived at the end of the 300s, the beginning of the 400s, um, who translated, um, he, was a, he was a great scholar in the sense he, 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 he translated the Bible into different languages and, and uh, is responsible for the Vulgate, the Latin translation. And... Um, Jerome was said to have those these have been his last words when he died. The last words of John Calvin, the last words of John Knox, into your hands, I commit my spirit and and really, <clears throat> what more powerful words could we utter in the face of death? Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Um, now, why would I think that Psalm 31 is not speaking exclusively of Jesus? Well, if verse 10 is iniquity. Okay, if we translate verse 10 as iniquity, that eliminates the fact this is directly of Jesus. But I, I think you've seen through this class that the Bible can prophesy of Jesus without being a direct and exclusive prophecy of Jesus. The fact that something is not exclusively about Jesus doesn't mean it's not about Jesus. And, and I think that's the situation here. Well, verse 10 and the mention of iniquity shows that David is pouring out his problems in his life and he's pouring out his problems in his life. Ultimately, he words things in such a way as they have a deeper fulfillment in Jesus Christ. A deeper fulfillment in Jesus than they did in David's experiences. Now, where else... Would you look at in this psalm and say that's about Jesus? That, okay, verse. You said verse five. Okay, we, it's, it's the part we mentioned. No, what you have ransomed me. Okay, you have ransomed me. Yes, you have ransomed me or redeemed me, and uh, we'll tie that in with that part of verse five in just a second. I saw David in verse eleven. Okay, a reproach. That term that's used, is it verse 11? Yeah. Reproach. That term is used over and over again. The same word that is translated here, reproach, is, is translated reproach in Psalm 69, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 19, and verse 20. Of Psalm 69. 
Now, Psalm 69 is much like Psalm 31. It's quoted in the New Testament. When Jesus says, I thirst, it may be that He's quoting from Psalm 69. It's interesting that Psalm 69 verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen upon me. That is quoted in Romans 15 verse 3 and applied to Jesus. And so the point is, Jesus has experienced. Because of my adversaries, I have become a reproach. I have become a reproach. Now, now the idea, part of the idea here too is just that they all leave Him to suffer alone. In verse 11, those who see Me flee from Me. Do you know the word that is translated in verse 11, flee? That that particular word uh, is used in Matthew 26, 56. In Mark, the, the same word that's used in the Greek translation is used in Matthew 26, 56, in Mark 14, 50, and in Mark 14, 52, for them fleeing from Jesus in the garden. He's a reproach. They're fleeing from Him. They're running from Him. Well, this sounds like Isaiah 53, too. Okay. Yeah. Particularly verse 10. For my life is spent... With sorrow. How is Jesus described in Isaiah 53 and verse 3? He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. So he's a man of sorrows. They they flee from him. He is a reproach. He is... um, and, And I looked at some of the wording... Uh, we'll, we'll look at the very the very wording how in verse thirteen they schemed they schemed to take away my life they schemed to take away my life that happened to Jesus they are constantly plotting against Jesus to kill him even very early in the Gospels in Mark three six. The Pharisees and Herodians are plotting as to how to kill him. They scheme to take away his life. It goes throughout his whole ministry. And when he says in verse 9, now I looked at the wording here and the wording wasn't the same, but the word distress. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he talked about my soul is deeply distressed even to the point of death in verse, around verse 37. And it wasn't the same word used in the Greek translation here as it's used in the Greek translation in the New Testament. But still, you get the idea that Jesus fulfills this this whole picture of the Psalms. That statement, though, in 13, the one right before it, they took counsel together against me. That's Psalm 2, 2, Acts 4. Okay, very good. Acts 4, 25 and 26, quote Psalm 2. Uh, the kings of the earth take counsel together. So they took counsel. Um, and that was in verse 13. They took counsel together against me. Yeah. And uh, yes, Acts 4, 25 and 26 quotes that is being fulfilled in Jesus. Now, look at all of this that David experiences but when he says into your hands I have committed my into your hands I commit my spirit and when he talks about being ransomed 
You've ransomed me. He's talking about being delivered from death, isn't he? He's talking about being delivered from death. Jesus quotes this when he's about to die. Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. You know what Jesus does is he stretches the meaning of Psalm 31. And he shows us if we experience all these things, even if we experience them and are not delivered, God's still going to rescue us. And Lloyd mentioned earlier, ransom me or redeem me. The final step of redemption in Romans 8 and verse 23 is the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. Of our bodies. And so we can say, into your hand I commit my spirit. That verse, Romans 8, 23. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That is true even if we don't experience deliverance. Even if we don't. God will rescue us. God will deliver us. God will save. Psalm 31.5 is is a way to live. Not just a way to die. But a way to live. And a way to die. Understanding that God through Jesus fulfilled this in a greater and deeper way. And we could look at all the things in this psalm. All the things in this psalm that are influenced by Jesus' use of this psalm. I mean, even that statement, be strong and take courage, doesn't that take on a new dimension in light of the resurrection? I mean, yes. It's just, it's powerful. It's powerful. And uh, I appreciate it. I I did want to, to... we have to thank Brad for the good job he did the other night. Titus did a really good job of reading the other night, too. I know that took a lot of work, didn't it? It takes a lot of work to read well. And it's something I need to be improving on more publicly. And I try to work at it some. Uh, but uh, I know it took a lot of work to do that. But thank you all. And, and Brad's got a song in just a second. And... Uh, as we close right, would you lead us in prayer? Our Father, we come to you in prayer to offer you our praise and our thanksgiving and our honor as the only true and living God. Father, we are so thankful to you that we have your word that we might understand who you are and what you would have us to be. Father, be with each of us as we work to learn more about you that you might open our eyes to the things that we learn from your word and help us to exemplify your word in our lives and help us to bring others to you as a result of the lives we lead father we ask that you would be with those who are are in need of your help and need of your comfort in need of your 
your healing hand and we would ask that it be your will you might give them what they need in order to be comforted in this life but understanding more importantly that you'll help each of us to to lead the kind of lives that will allow us to receive the comfort in the life that is to come we ask these things through Christ Amen. 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 Amen.